Hey, it's Andy. I want to tell you about a new podcast from CPR News. It's called Ghost Train. Ghost Train is about how Denver voters in 2004 backed one of the most ambitious transit projects in the U.S., a network of rail lines that would help transform Denver into a world-class city. Nathaniel Miner, CPR's transportation reporter, takes a close look at where that plan succeeded, where it got off track, and where public transit in the Denver area might be headed. Follow Ghost Train from Colorado Public Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There are more than 350,000 people who work in Colorado's public sector. They're the people that you might think of, police officers, firefighters, but that also includes truck drivers and university professors and the doctors and nurses that work at some of our state's hospitals. My name is Sarah Jungles. I'm a float pool CNA at Denver Health, and I'm a nursing student here at Arapahoe Community College. So on a recent Monday morning, I met one. Sarah Jungles showed me around the community college where she's getting her nursing degree, and like she mentioned, she's also working full-time at Denver Health, a job that she started about seven years ago. When I first started at Denver Health, I made $13 an hour, and that was significantly more than my home state of Indiana. Um, so I thought it was good until uh, rent prices. And I uh, only paid $600 a month in rent in Indiana. So uh, when I came out here and I realized my rent was going to be more 13 to $1,400, um, it was pretty quick that I realized I wasn't going to be able to keep up with the bills. It's been tough. On the day that we visited the college, she showed me the on-campus food pantry that she's been relying on to get through a lot of months. Even working full-time and taking out student loans, it's paycheck to paycheck um, every month. And usually we end up having to come here at least once a month to get food. And um, usually we end up having to like pawn something before rent is due to pay rent and then try to make it up um, the next month. Um, so it's been a battle. She's hoping that things will change when she graduates this year and upgrades her position. I mean, hopefully um, I'll get paid substantially more so I can be a little bit more self-sufficient um, and hopefully give back. But even as she's trying to change her individual situation, she's also working on something bigger. She's joined a union effort. What really was a big thing that started um, was back in like May 2020 at Denver Health, we were asked to donate our PTO back to the organization and to really just kind of take time off without pay. And during that time, our leadership gave themselves over a million dollars in uh, bonuses. Um, so it was just one of those things where you saw that we were all sacrificing. We were all working very, very difficult jobs with the pandemic going on and we were kind of treated as we were replaceable. So I think that that was kind of where everyone kind of was, we need to do something to change. Today, Sarah is working with the Communication Workers of America, Local 7799, and they've linked up with hundreds of other potential new members, not just from Denver Health, but also from the Denver Public Library, UC Health, and the University of Colorado. And wages are just one of our things that we're fighting for. Um, there's a lot of things for safety that we could use. Um, just being able to make sure that everyone gets benefits and is able to take care of their families. Just knowing that they respect your opinion and that they care about us and they care about our safety. So there'll be a lot of things that we still need to work for to make better. There is one problem, though. These public employees don't always have the right to do the number one thing that unions do to bargain with their bosses because the whole effort is running up against a fundamental part of Colorado's kind of unusual labor laws. And the question of whether that should change is becoming one of this year's biggest fights at the state capitol. 
This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics and policy. I'm Megan Verley, in for Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. Today's episode is focused on a proposal to significantly expand the union rights of Colorado's public sector workers. Some of the top Democrats in the legislature want to allow workers for hundreds of cities, counties, school districts, and other local public employers to collectively bargain. We're going to explain why that would be a really big deal for Colorado, what it would actually mean, and why it's also leading to some pretty sharp divisions even among Democrats. Andy, before we get to what lawmakers want to change about Colorado's labor laws, I think you probably have to fill us in on where they stand right now. Yeah, I think I could probably do that. Colorado, just to explain the general situation, has relatively low union presence. You know, relatively few people here are members of a union, sub 10 percent. But after decades of declines in memberships here and, frankly, across the country, there's been more interest in unions. There's been this kind of spark of life for the labor movement. I think we've been seeing that in our own newscasts and reporting a lot this spring. Places unionizing, unions going on strike. Yeah, exactly. We saw the King Supers strike, which <laughs> captured a lot of people's attention. What do we want? When do we want it? What do we want? We've heard about union drives at places like Spruce Confections in Boulder or at individual Starbucks stores. And there's just more interest in general in taking advantage of these kind of union and labor rights that are built into uh, not just state but federal law for some workers. Now, I know many states have moved in recent decades to make it harder to organize, becoming right-to-work states where workplaces can't require that employees join a union. It seems like Colorado must not have those laws if we've had the King Supers strike and the kind of organizing drives that you just mentioned. Totally. Like I mentioned, we don't have especially high union density, but Colorado laws are fairly supportive of unions, maybe not the friendliest. But ultimately, most workers can go through that process of, you know, holding a vote, forming a union, bargaining with your employer, and potentially going on strike. But as we were kind of alluding to, there is one big group who's left out. And as we are going to go through this episode and explain, that is public workers, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. What are the rules for public workers in Colorado? And are they different for local public workers and state employees? All right, let's start. I'd love to do this by going all the way back. Maybe we can get some time machine music. To the landmark Labor Peace Act that the state passed back in 1943. It was called the Labor Peace Act because it was literally meant to stop violence. The state is known for some, like, hardcore violence, mostly perpetrated against union members, the famous Ludlow Massacre. The government at that point wanted to settle the rules for how it works for private sector employees, public sector. One of the main things they wanted to do was to make sure that no matter what rules they changed about the private sector, that the government kept a lot of its power over its own workers. And so dating back to then, maybe earlier, the laws here in Colorado have limited the core union rights for uh, those public workers. And that's similar to what about 23 other states do. They set special rules that make it harder for those public employees to take advantage of the rights everybody else has. That seems like it's in the the interest of public sector employers. I mean, employers yeah. don't usually give their employees the right to, to organize voluntarily. Correct. Yeah. And we'll get a little bit into the arguments for why you might want to do that or might not. But the upshot for now is that a lot of public workers just like cannot collectively bargain, can't do the big union thing. 
unless they get permission, basically, from local elected officials or from voters. It's really left up to the local level. Well, I, I want a quick time out here because I do know that we have a lot of public sector unions. I mean, our coverage of education always involves the teachers' unions. Uh, you know, if there's something going on with the Aurora police or the Denver police, we go to their union for a comment. So it's not like Colorado doesn't have any unionized public workers. Yeah, that's totally right. But those workers tend to fall into the categories that you named, the ones where they're most common, cops, firefighters, teachers. And those only cover about a quarter of the cities and counties and school districts of the state. I should also mention that as of recently, state employees themselves have some collective bargaining rights. But the upshot is that it's only allowed where it's allowed. There's not really a statewide standard letting these local workers really unionize. So they have to get permission from their city council, their county commissioners, or from voters to unionize. Is that happening anywhere? I mean, it must be because there are some unions. It's happened over the years, but it's really difficult to make progress if you're a union supporter in areas that don't really support unions. It means that, you know, Colorado Springs firefighters tried to convince voters to let them collectively bargain a few years ago, and it got shot down something like 66% to 34%. Because you can imagine in Colorado Springs, not a lot of public support for unions and therefore pretty hard to get those union rights. So basically because union organizing and bargaining rights are in the hands of voters or in elected officials elected by those voters, Mm -hmm. whether you're a public sector worker who has these rights kind of may fall along the political lines of your region, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. And for union supporters, they want that collective bargaining right because, you know, it opens up the door to negotiate really specific stuff, to negotiate a contract, to negotiate how much you get paid, uh, what your benefits are, how the workplace works. They want that so that they have a lot more leverage over what happens in the workplace. So to recap... Colorado for a long time has made it hard for public sector workers to collectively bargain. It's moved to give them sort of a a local control version of that if they can win it. But now it sounds like the fight's at the state capitol? That is exactly right. It's actually a bit of a perennial issue at the state capitol, this question of who, who can collectively bargain when and where. But this year's been special. So every time that Democrats win the trifecta, every time that they capture, that is to say, the governor and the Senate and the House, you know, total control of state government, every time that happens, Democrats take on this public sector union issue. They tend to have kind of mixed results. So go back to 2008. They try to pass a bill to let firefighters collectively bargain all across the state. The governor, Ritter, vetoes it. 2013, they pass another bill about firefighters bargaining. And Hickenlooper signs it, says it's a compromise, but ultimately, for kind of complicated reasons, it doesn't actually change much. Then, 2020, they've got the trifecta again, and this time, though, it comes out different. The legislature and the governor kind of team up to grant these collective bargaining rights to state employees, you know, people who work directly for the state, about, you know, 30,000 of them in all. And the reason this keeps happening is because Democrats are kind of between a rock and a hard place here, right? The union movement's a big supporter of Democratic politicians. Mm -hmm. So when Democrats get in office, they are beholden to organize labor to try and advance its interests. But on the other side, 
advancing public worker union rights, I imagine, comes with costs and potentially hassle for public employers. And so it sounds like in that history, what we're hearing is this tension between representing the interests of, of one of the big groups that makes up their coalition and trying not to rock the boat too much with a very large workforce whose paychecks they ultimately are at least partially responsible for covering. I would push back and say these lawmakers are not just representing union interests. Many of them believe this is a fundamental right that's good for the workplace. So the result has been that Colorado has stayed with about half the states, including a lot of more conservative states, that put some limits on that public sector bargaining. The other half of the states allow public sector bargaining a lot more universally. And what we're seeing this year is a new push by state lawmakers to push Colorado into that more union-friendly category. That sounds like it could be a really big change. What are they trying to do? Well, the biggest thing that we heard about even before session started was that two really influential Democrats were going to throw down the gauntlet, or the gantlet if you prefer, Gauntlet, it's gauntlet. (laughs) And tear down pretty much all the limits that they could on public sector organizing. Uh, This bill draft was introduced by House Majority Leader Denea Eskar and new Senate President Steve Fenberg. Collective bargaining is a fundamental right that should be available to all Coloradans, regardless of where they work. Our current laws actually deny this basic right to some of the most important workers in our state, including tens of thousands of local public employees. Eskar is from Pueblo, if you didn't know, which is, of course, a strong union city with its Mm. historic uh, industrial base. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the draft was quite broad, and it said basically that public sector unions don't need permission to collectively bargain anymore. That if you work for, I don't know, the fire department in Westcliff and you get enough support to form a union, I don't even know if Westcliff has a fire department. Anyway, if you get enough support to form that union, then your boss has to play ball. So are there a lot of these unionizing efforts waiting in the wings? I mean, you mentioned the CNA we met at the top is part of an organizing drive. So if this bill passes, would there be a lot of people taking it up, I guess? At least in the Denver metro, I think that we would see a renewed effort. I'm not sure what it looks like outside of here. But, you know, um, we mentioned that that potential new union would cross from Denver Health to the library to the university. And just to get a sense of what was driving that, I called around to hear from, you know, for example, Nate Stone at Denver Public Library, who described workers experiencing homelessness and poverty. So as we organized the union, we met more and more folks who were couch surfing, who experienced like periodic homelessness, who were who were sacrificing food on a regular basis. They want to be able to serve the community they love, but they should be able to afford to live in the community that they serve. Or from Macon Fessenden uh, at CU Health, who described attrition so bad that colleagues were just constantly leaving. Then you're like, okay, I feel bad for my coworkers. Um, the patients aren't getting the care that they need because because they're short staffed, and it's like. How do you, you know, how do you square that? But so far, these organizers haven't had luck getting that permission to bargain from their workforces, like Sarah Jungles explained. Unfortunately, our uh, leadership has chosen to not recognize our union for the last two years. So this would be something where they um, couldn't do that anymore. They would have to work with us. Andy, uh, you've said that this bill, if it really gets out there in the form that its backers want it to, could be one of the biggest debates of the session. And I can imagine why we're talking about hundreds of thousands of workers, potentially. 
where are the battle lines falling at this point? Well, there's quite a few different battle lines, a number of different sides kind of lining up against this. Let me walk you through just a few, okay? Mm-hmm. First up, want to acknowledge that, of course, like some workers, some employees just don't like the idea of unionization. Here's Todd Payne, a Westminster police officer, speaking out against the collective bargaining drive in that city at a city council meeting. All of the things that he laid out initially cannot be solved through collective bargaining. The fact that the state legislature has passed some horrible legislation won't be changed or affected by collective bargaining. I think collective bargaining just brings an adversarial role into what is happening at the Westminster Police Department. Okay, that makes sense to me. I mean, in any really large workforce, you're going to have some workers who support organizing and some who don't and who would probably be pretty mad to find out that they have to pay union dues down the line. By the way, Supreme Court decision, U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Janus case, I believe, says that public sector workers actually can't be forced to pay those union dues. But point stands. A lot of them are maybe not going to want to be part of that new union type situation. That's really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. That's a, a useful point. Bigger than individual workers, though, Colorado cities and counties are a huge political force at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. They do not like giving up their power. I would assume that they would be one of the biggest opponents to this. Yeah, it's almost like you've read my stories on this. It's almost like I've been in the Capitol for years and years. That too. Good instincts. There's a, a coalition of a bunch of groups of, you know, cities and school leaders and chambers of commerce. And they've all written a letter objecting to this pretty strenuously. Well, yeah, as we've talked about, employers don't love when their workers get this right in the most part. But also, this could really cost some money. I mean, if all these different employee groups go on strike for more wages to to increase their workforces, I pay taxes in the city of Denver. That eventually affects how much I'm paying and what other government services I get. So I could imagine a lot of local leaders would not be excited about this prospect. Yeah, for better or for worse, studies have found that unionized workforces win higher pay. Now, you could say that's better for retaining your workforce, training your people better. But also, yeah, that's a common argument and a common objection that this is going to take away some of the budgeting power that governments have. That's going to force them to pay higher wages. I called up Scott James. He's a commissioner in Weld County about this. And he argued exactly that, that it was going to undermine his responsibility as an elected official. Oh boy, here goes the state taking the control of Weld County's budget out of the duly elected Weld County officials' hands. You could argue that it would be the largest unfunded mandate in Colorado history. We have no idea what it will cost. And he says that Weld County voters would likely never go for this kind of union bargaining. Makes sense. A very conservative county. A safe bet. So arguably this change is going over their heads, going around what they want. And he adds that, you know, he doesn't think that this is needed. He thinks that, uh, you know, workers have plenty of options already. I would say get with your, your fellow employees, get with your supervisors and come and talk to us. You don't need that collective bargaining. I think they found that the Board of County Commissioners is very reasonable in Weld County. And his last big rhetorical point was that he wanted to know why the people supporting this change weren't just pursuing unionizing at their own local level. Nothing is forbidding them, Andrew, from doing so. That's actually a really good question. I mean, there are counties in Colorado run by Democrats, Democrats who, as you pointed out earlier, uh, may fundamentally believe in organizing rights. 
why aren't Colorado's more liberal counties just using the power they already have to encourage their own local unionization? To get that answer, I called up another county commissioner. I've been talking to a lot of county commissioners this session. Uh, Andy Kerr is in Jefferson County. Andy, he used to be in the legislature. That guy is very into unions. I happen to know that. Also bicycles. Anyway, he said that he was speaking for himself. And when I posed that question, why don't you just do it yourself? Um, first of all, he, he he actually immediately knew that the talking point came from Scott James. Oh, Scott, uh, we while he and I have not had a direct conversation, we have been on Zooms like this where uh, we have each expressed our our opinions around this. We know where uh, each other sits. But anyway, Andy Kerr said that in his 13 months as a commissioner, yeah, he hadn't actually seen an employee effort to organize in Jeffco. He argued that part of the reason is that state law just makes it so hard to get this done that, you know, seeing those Colorado Springs firefighters is just discouraging and that workers don't want to stick their necks out if they don't think they have a good chance of getting collective bargaining. And his bigger point was that ultimately these kinds of rights shouldn't come down to someone else's vote. Whether they're working in Jefferson County or whether they're working in, let's say, Weld County, it shouldn't matter where they live, where they work as far as being able to have their right, have their rights. I mean, uh, as Americans, we, we all have these rights. And by the way, he points out that plenty of unions seem to work perfectly well with their government. He was a former member of the Jefferson County Teachers Union. And he pointed out that, you know, one year when the budget was in bad shape, they even accepted a pay cut. I want to go back to something he said there, though, that the idea that rights shouldn't be put to a, a vote, because mm. That is actually kind of justification that I've heard lawmakers make over the years when they know they can't win a public vote, uh, that that the issue is too important to put to voters because it is, but also uh, because voters might disagree with them. Sure. So no offense to Andy Kerr there, but that is a piece of rhetoric that gets used on a lot of issues that people may feel very strongly about, but not have the, the full public support for. Those are individual county commissioners. Let's talk lobbyists because the groups that represent local governments, they have a big footprint at the Capitol. And I imagine mm. that they are stomping pretty hard on this bill. Yes, we are hearing the words local control a lot this session. And those are some words that are really important to the Colorado State Legislature. Mm -hmm. I talked to Kevin Bomber. He's the head of the Colorado Municipal League. You can guess what those guys do. He was formerly a lobbyist and now he's, you know, in leadership. He said, this cracked me up, like some kind of a retired cop coming back for one more case, he had to reinstate his lobbyist license. I bet there were a certain number of lawmakers who were not excited to see him uh, show up in their doors in that capacity. Uh, Bomber can make a forceful point, we'll say. Anyway, he's so firmly opposed to this, he's basically not even involved in the details of the negotiations because lawmakers already know that he ain't moving. This is Colorado. This is local control state. And there is nothing, and there should be nothing wrong with proponents um, working at the local level as citizens and their voters and the governing bodies and crafting locally appropriate solutions, which may or may not include collective bargaining. Okay, so lawmakers who want to make this change are caught between two giant groups here, mm -hmm. public sector workers and the unions that currently exist to represent them, uh, and local public employers who have a huge amount of political clout and mm. can really influence an election, say. I don't think that these are the only forces at play, though. Yeah, that's right. There is a third force, a third who, in fact, a third person. Mm. And that who is Jared Polis, the governor. 
So from pretty much the second that I knew this bill was in the works, I had one big question, and that's where would Polis fall? Recently, we got a little bit more detail. Let me read you some of his spokesman's words about what Polis thinks about this bill. He said, The governor has made it clear to the bill sponsors and advocates that he will not support the bill in its current form. He points out that, yeah, sure, we signed the earlier state collective bargaining bill for those state employees, but he said that struck a balance between collective bargaining and elected representation. And he closed by saying the door is open to a much narrower legislation to expand those collective bargaining rights. So not a great sign for the fate of the bill as it was originally drafted. No, that is uh, damning with something even less than faint praise. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. But to go back to it, basically, he is sort of trying to brush up his organized labor bona fides by pointing out that he did sign that stake workforce collective bargaining bill, but also making it really clear that he is not going to go for the big idea in this bill. Yeah, a fairly distinct line that he's drawn in the sand. Do we know where the line is? Like, what's on his side of the line? (laughs) Good good question. His office has been pretty close-lipped on it. The last statement we got was, we're going to continue to talk about it, basically. We do know that there are some avenues that he could take. Um, For example, the law that gave the collective bargaining to the state employees doesn't let them strike. So maybe they could carve out striking and say, you can't do that. Or maybe he could want to carve out whole workplaces. Maybe he wants to let cities off the hook or school districts off the hook and only focus it on universities and counties, which are a little bit more closely tied to the state. I think anytime we start talking about Jared Polis on Purplish, we start out talking about where he is on one specific issue. And then it becomes kind of the Jared Polis uh personality tests? Like, what does this say about Jared Polis's larger politics? Because they don't fall on standard Democratic lines often. The idea that he's willing to try to kibosh a, a major organizing bill this early in the process, what does it add to our picture of Jared Polis's politics? I'll say that I didn't feel surprised to know that he wouldn't support something quite as broad as this. You know, we've seen him tap the brakes or encourage some big changes to other stuff, too, like the paid family leave bill comes to mind. Um, He kind of steered that toward a much more private-based model instead of a big public investment. That was a big fight a few years ago. And then last year, there was that climate change bill that we spent the whole session with a bunch of Democratic lawmakers saying, we've got to do this, and Mm -hmm. Polis saying, "Uh, uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. That's that's where I'm getting deja vu. Yeah, or taxes. You know, he regularly (laughs) comes out and says he doesn't love income taxes. He wants to find other ways to fund government. And, you know, that that is a big bone of contention with a lot of progressives. So you can add this to that pile of bones of contention. So uh, once again, progressives not super happy with Jared Polis. Uh, of course, we're going into an election where he doesn't have uh, a strong primary challenger. So he may very well be able to afford to, to lose that wing of the party. Well, yeah. And I also think that in some ways it burnishes his image because he constantly positions himself a little bit more toward the center more pragmatic, whether or not you agree that this is a pragmatic approach. Polling seems to indicate from what I've seen that he's in a stronger position than the legislature. So he can draw a contrast there, not just against Republicans, but against his own party. Well, going back to the heart of this episode and the idea that Democrats really do want to do something on public sector organizing this session, Mm -hmm. is there any chance? I mean, we're more than a month 
into session. It usually takes a while for big bills to be negotiated, but they have to get introduced sometime if they're going to go anywhere. Yeah, I think that the whole thing is indeed back at the drawing table. But, you know, this is like the, gosh, the is it the fourth year of this Democratic trifecta? And I think the Democratic leaders have learned to work with polis on issues like this. And they're not really backing down. You know, that just the other week they brought a couple hundred people out for a rally about this bill to stand on the Capitol steps and say they wanted it. Well, that is uh, one way to get the governor's attention since his <laughs> windows overlook the plaza where these rallies tend to happen. Yep. Um, so what odds do you give it at this point? Obviously, you must think something's moving since you've spent a lot of time working on explaining it all to us. I, I would guess that something will pass, but it will not remotely resemble how broad it was to begin with. And you're going to end up most likely with a lot of disappointed union people. Uh, but at the same time, I just, you know, I don't see the legislature letting this thing die altogether. That would be pretty embarrassing. And, you know, the pro-labor leaders in the legislature, like Dominic Moreno, who helped pass collective bargaining, actually, when he was the Commerce City Councilman, they seem to be on board for compromise. You know, I do think that the, the caucus is committed to delivering collective bargaining rights for, for public employees. Perhaps some of the conversation is around a narrower bill as being contemplated by the governor. Maybe that's an element of what happens. But, you know, I, I do think in general, like, I'm certainly committed to trying to include as many public workers as possible, as long as the policy, you know, makes sense and is workable for all those different local entities. I want to acknowledge that Senator Moreno did seem to be operating a microwave or some kind of a digital lock in the background there. <laughs> he is a busy, busy dude. He's the new majority leader there in the Senate, actually. Well, and that speaks to something, right? He's in a leadership position mm -hmm. in the legislature. Uh, you said at the very beginning that the two lawmakers driving this the most are also in leadership. It seems like we've got yet another moment where Colorado Democrats are collectively having to figure out where they fall on the political spectrum, right? Are they, mm -hmm. with all this control of state government, are they going to push further into progressive policies? Or mm -hmm. do they still need to stand a bit closer to the middle because this state isn't as blue as some of their members might want? Oh, my God. Would you even call it purplish? I will continue to call it purplish so that people won't try to make us change the name of our show. And also because I think this fall could be quite surprising. In, in all seriousness, I think that, yes, we are constantly seeing lawmakers in this state figure out what it means to be progressive in Colorado because it is different from other states. Well, given kind of the, the hard road this bill might have to hoe, where does it leave the workers who want this right? Well, I, that's a big question. I wonder overall, like I mentioned earlier, like union membership has been declining for decades. I wonder if this moment ultimately does anything to reverse that trend. But what we do know is that that effort is there, is that we are in a moment of union organizing, no matter what it turns out in. So maybe we can take things back to Arapahoe Community College with Sarah Jungles. One moment that stood out to me was walking with her down the hallway where there were these dozens of class photo boards with like hundreds or maybe thousands of pictures of nursing graduates. And, you know, she's getting ready to jump into this new level of work as a full-fledged nurse. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm nervous. I think, uh, you know, if you get out there and you think you know everything, that's what I was told is not what you want to do. So I, 
you know, apprehensive. I want to make sure that I'm a good nurse and I do a good job. And so maybe depending on how this bill turns out, her life could be really busy in a whole way soon. Like she mentioned her group had attracted hundreds of members in a matter of days when they started recruiting. You know, I think uh, whatever I can do, I know there's a lot of fear um, and people are afraid. So I think that um, for me, I can't say that I also didn't have those fears, but I still just felt like it was an important thing to be a part of. So I think that Sarah's story really illustrates the challenge that the legislature faces right now, where there is this momentum, there is this new union movement. How is the legislature going to kind of live up to the promises that some of its leaders have made to workers like her by introducing this bill? How are they going to, on the pro-union side, take advantage of this union moment while also balancing the concerns of those cities and the schools that make up such a big part of public life here in Colorado? And, you know, they've only got so many months to figure this out while they've still got this guaranteed trifecta before these 2022 elections coming up. So, to be a little too neat about it, any collective bargaining bill we might see first has to be collectively bargained among all these forces. It's true, though. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleague, Megan Verlee. We'll be back in your podcast feeds in two weeks with Benta back in the hosting chair as well, thankfully. And so if you are not already following us, be sure to sign up so you don't miss it. And if you are enjoying Purplish, please rate us or leave us a review. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to send us an email, you can get us at purplish at CPR.org. This is Purplish from CPR News. CPR News.